Well, church, it's hard to believe we're here. Summer's about over. As Todd said, it's, it's hard to believe it's here. Though I'm not wearing my flip-flops like Todd. And, and given the fact that we're going to be transfer, transitioning into our normal ministry schedule and beginning our study of Daniel next week, I, I thought it would be a good time to press into an important but often misunderstood aspect of our mission as a church. And our mission, we've put it this way, we exist to glorify God by pursuing God as our greatest treasure, by loving all people, and multiplying devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission as a church, taken directly from God's word. But but as you listen to that, you might be wondering, okay, which which one of these things do you think is the most misunderstood? I'd like to suggest it's our call to love our neighbors as ourselves. It might be one of the most misunderstood and often most misrepresented aspects of our calling in Christ. Therefore, as we turn to our text this morning, and before you turn to the bulletin and pull out your note-taking sheet and find the answers, I'd like to ask you a question. A question that gets asked right in this text. Who is your neighbor? Don't look down. Who's your neighbor? Who's included as your neighbor? Who is excluded as your neighbor? Who does this command apply to and who does it not apply to? Well, let's turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan so we can see what Jesus himself has to say. It begins with a test starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now now on the surface, surface, this question seems to be rather pious, right? Right? Like, like, I want to inherit eternal life, and that's a good thing. And he recognizes that there's a need that some people are going to receive it, and some people are not going to receive it. But Luke makes it clear that the lawyer's question here, and when we're talking about a lawyer, we're talking about an expert in the law of Moses, that the lawyer here is not motivated by a humble, honest pursuit of an answer, is he? No, no, he's trying to put Jesus to the test. He's trying to trip up Jesus and to make him look bad in front of the crowd. In fact, if we take even a closer look at the question, we're able to see that he is really working from his law-orientated, works-based view of righteousness. Because in his question, he's focused really on on a single action or deed that he must do. What must I do? What thing must I accomplish what thing must I perform to inherit eternal life? And this, this was a question that a lot, of the, a lot of the lawyers would banter back and forth about. He wants to put Jesus on the spot to see where he lands. Which is why Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question of his own. Well, tell me what's written in the law. What's written in the law? Now, now, have you ever gotten to this point 
I know we like almost everybody knows this passage, like ever since flannel graph in children's church, right? Have you ever slowed down to ask, why doesn't Jesus answer the lawyer's question about eternal life with the gospel's call to repent and believe? Have you ever wondered that? Like, like, like Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we're saved through faith, and it's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not by what? Works. Not by doing, lest any man should boast. Be a great place, right? I mean, granted, Paul hasn't written that yet when Jesus is having this conversation. But, but, but like, why doesn't he go there? Well, as John Calvin pointed out, a number of hundred years before. At this point, Jesus isn't presenting the gospel because the lawyer is not asking the question, how should I seek eternal life, but by what works must I do to obtain it? He's asking a working question, so Jesus is answering his working question with works. And so why he points him to the law of Moses. And this question of works-based righteousness, this lawyer is really good. He has a really solid answer. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, that's the two places he goes. He brings both of these passages together to form his answer. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5 to begin with. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now notice, what is the fundamental implication of God being the only God? The fundamental implication of God's supremacy over all things is that God is not content with the leftover scraps of his people's affections. I mean, just let that sink in. God don't want your leftovers. He don't want you leftovers. He doesn't want you to be pursuing all your loves in the world and give him whatever you happen to have left over at the end of the day. No, he wants you to love you with all of his heart, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wants a wholehearted love driven by the fact that he is exclusive and and the supreme ruler over all things. And he doesn't leave any aspect of of our lives, out of the picture. All your heart, soul, and strength. And strength is in, the, in Hebrew is just this word variness. It's really like every capacity that you have. So it's something that's on the inside and in how we live our lives. And it's remote, and, it's, and how do we see this most notably in somebody's life? The lawyer then quickly transitions to Leviticus 19.18. He sees it imperative in the, our interactions with other people. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Leviticus 19.18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Please don't miss this. This guy is giving a stellar answer. Okay? Now Jesus is going to critique it. But this is a good answer. 
Let me just make quick two, two quick observations so I don't spoil the parable. N- number one, that this command is setting an incredibly high bar on our love for our neighbor because it employs the very same Hebrew word for love that's used in Deuteronomy chapter six. Same word, not different words. High bar. Number two, when we look at the immediate context of this verse, the command seems to restrict neighbor to their fellow Israelites. It's a command given to Jews, and at least in this command here, it seems to be restricted to fellow Israelites. These two points are important because because Jesus doesn't add anything to the lawyer's answer. He doesn't. nor, Nor did he actually ask the lawyer to define what neighbor means. He knows it's coming. Jesus simply replies, you asked about eternal life. You gave a really good answer. Do this and you will live. So how come the conversation doesn't end here? Like, 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 Jesus just agreed with his answer. Why, why, does it not, why, why does it keep going? It's because, because this man is being pressed by what Jesus says. The challenge, who is my neighbor, flows from the, the fact that this man needs to justify himself now with another question. Desiring to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? See, what is Jesus doing in this answer? He's openly confronting this lawyer with the law's demand to actually do what it requires. It's not just about knowing what the law requires and affirming what the law requires. It's about doing what the law requires. And it's important. I mean, eternal life is at stake. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some small little thing. He's talking about eternal life. Therefore, when it comes to eternal life, the most important thing is not simply knowing what a person must do according to the law, but actually doing what it requires. And this is why the lawyer snaps back with the qualifying question, who in the world is my neighbor? Yet instead of turning to the law, and Jesus could, At this point, Jesus could go to a number of Old Testament texts and demonstrate the broader implications of what it means to be a neighbor. But he doesn't. And he doesn't take the tack that Paul does in Acts 17, verses 26 to 27, to show us that neighbor applies to all men because all men are descendants of Adam. He doesn't go there either. He turns to a story. Turns to a story. And he does so, I don't think because he's trying to make this man look bad, but I think it's because he wants to rescue this man from his self-made prison that's not only restricting him from his love for other people, but that's ultimately preventing him from recognizing the truth. That even his greatest attempts to fulfill these two commands are never going to produce the eternal life that he desires. See, see, Jesus is bringing this to him. We've got to know this on the front side. He's, 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 he's going into this parable because he wants this man to understand in the big picture, it's impossible to attain eternal life by your doing. 
James 2.10, for whoever who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been become guilty of it all. Romans 3.20, why does the law exist? For the works of the law by no, pardon me, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We hit this time and time again. The law never produces righteousness. It never shows righteousness. It shows failure. And it's only when we finally recognize this that we're able to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. The the, the burden of the law finally becomes so great we realize we can't do it that we realize there needs to be another way. So let's go to the parable. Pick it up at verse 30. Jesus replied, man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw it he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, let's just touch on the setting of this parable for a minute. I mean, we got, we got the man and the priest and the Levite. And the way Jesus is telling the story, these are all fellow Jews. Why? They're all coming down from the same place. They're coming down from Jerusalem, the spiritual heart of Israel. 2,600 feet above sea level, winding down an 18-mile road that goes all the way down to 825 feet below sea level to Jericho. His fellow Israelites, they're bound together by their common identity. They're bound together by their temple worship. They're bound together by their covenant with God. And even more, as we've just read in Leviticus, these are the very people who the command, love your neighbor as yourself, most directly applies. Direct application. In fact, Jesus plays on this very truth when he transitions to the hope-inducing phrase, now by chance. Like, like we've all read stories, right? Now by chance normally means an introduction of something good that's going to happen. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. Yay, a priest is coming. What better person to arrive on the scene than a priest, a man whose entire life is devoted to serving God and interceding for God's people? I mean, right out of the gate, it looks like the man's going to be saved, right? But no. The priest saw. Don't, don't, don't miss that. He saw the man, naked and wounded on the side of the road, and he decided with no apparent sense of moral dilemma that the man wasn't his neighbor. And as a result, he was neither responsible for him nor was this man his problem. And what does he do? He simply steps to the other side of the road and continues on his journey down to Jericho. Shortly after this, Levite comes down the road, sees the very same man once again. His arrival brings a sense of hope because what are the, what are the Levites? They're the people who serve the priests in the temple. 
Like, like these, these, these two groups of people are the kind of people who you think are loving God the most. Right? What kinds of things they do? They, they, they clean the sacrificial courts. They prepare sacrifices. They serve as porters. But here's an important thing that the Levites do. <clears throat> they interpret God's law. They have a teaching duty. Certainly, certainly we would think that a man who interprets God's law would stop and care for this helpless man, his brother Israelite. But he doesn't. Rather, just like the priest, he steps to the other side of the road in self-assured confidence that the man is neither his neighbor nor his responsibility. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You would think that these men are loving God the most. And it's probably this part of the story that the lawyer is expecting Jesus to simply induce, to introduce an average everyday Israelite into the scene to show how an average everyday Israelite does better than the priests and the Levites. But the third traveler who arrives on the scene and has compassion, the very thing that the other two men do not have, they don't have compassion. He's not an Israelite, he's a Samaritan. He's a hated half-breed religious heretic. I mean, let's just take a minute to, to press in to the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, because if we don't understand the depth of the animosity, we don't understand the power of this parable. Three things. Number one, the Samaritans were Jewish, we can put that in quotes, but they weren't pure-blooded Jews. That's the half-breed part. They weren't full-blooded Jews, Kind of the the short history story, which we could take the rest of the morning on, which we won't. 722 BC, Assyria comes in, conquers the ten northern kingdoms. The king deports almost all of the population of the northern kingdom to some other region of his empire, and then backfills it with another group of people, the Kuthites. And they resettle the northern kingdom of Israel. So so he flip-flops people groups. And the remaining Israelites that are still left in the northern kingdom are then absorbed and assimilated into this new group through intermarriage. So, so that's kind of like a, the, the, the understanding of how do these people arrive, how are they the Samaritans, and what is their background, that's how they come to be. Number two. As time went on between this time of intermarriage and everything else, and later on, the Samaritans along the line come to believe that Judaism, that is the temple worship in Jerusalem, was a distorted version of Israel's true faith. They believed that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was God's appointed place of worship because it was the first place Israel worshipped after they came into the promised land. This is the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well, right? John chapter 4. On account of this, the Samaritans believed that they were the only ones who rightly worshipped God and they referred to themselves as the true keepers of the Torah. So we have this religious division. But how about the animosity? Like, like I mean, there's certainly enough in the religious division to get there, but it's even more. The long-standing conflict between the Jews and Samaritans can be traced all the way back to 520 BC when the exiled people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, they got exiled, that's Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
We're going to learn about that just next week. Okay? When they get sent back, Ezra and Nehemiah, they get sent back to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So, so when they're coming back into the land, they're trying to rebuild and do everything to get the land started again. Their long-lost cousins, the Samaritans, didn't welcome them home. Rather, they did everything in their power to hamper their progress, to keep them from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and building the temple. They made it hard. And the Jews didn't forget it. It took them a while, but 400 years later, 111 B.C., the Jews marched on the Sumerian city of Shechem and destroyed it, and they razed the temple on Mount Gerizim to the ground. There's a little bit of baggage, we could say. Right? That's just the tip of the iceberg to what's packed into one word. Samaritan. In the eyes of the Jews. See, what I want you to see in this is that no Jew in their right mind would ever expect a Samaritan to show any manner of kindness to them because there was over five centuries of ethnic and religious bigotry, backstabbing, bloodshed, and outright hatred between them. This is not a small deal. In fact, if anybody else was telling the story, the Samaritan probably would have arrived on the scene and stabbed the man to death. But what does this hated enemy and religious heretic do? He sees the man and he does what the priest and Levite know to be right, but they refuse to do. They know it to be right, but they refuse to do it. He sees the man, he's moved with compassion, and he does everything he can in his power to save his life. He doesn't go to the other side of the road, he goes to him. He stoops down, he tends his wounds. When he gets him ready, he puts him on his own animal, he carries him down to the inn, and he willingly assumed the financial burden of his recovery. I mean, ironically, Jesus makes the Samaritan whose theology he openly rejects in John chapter 4, verse 22. Like, like Jesus isn't saying this man has a right view of worship. But he's making him in his actions a moral, his, his, a moral hero for Israel. Which brings us to the main point in verses 36 and 37. Jesus finishes telling the story. And he looks right at the lawyer. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Door number one, door number two, door number three. And he answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go do likewise. Notice here that the question that Jesus asks in verse 46 is not the same question that the lawyer asks in verse 29. So you see, for the lawyer, when he's asking his question, neighbor's a noun. 
It's an object to whom he owed some kind of duty. And on account of this, he wanted to know who was, and perhaps more importantly, who wasn't his neighbor, so that he could avoid any sense of obligation. And certainly know how to attain eternal life, because he needed to know what to do and not do. Yet for Jesus, here in the text, neighbor's not a noun, something we must merely have, but more of a verb. Something we actively are, or we could say that we become. We see this most clearly when we analyze the Greek word behind the word proved here in our text in the ESV. The Greek word behind that word proved is the verb became. Who became his neighbor? That that kind of opens up for us to see a little more clearly what's going on. If we kind of wanted to give a wooden translation, it might be something like this. Which of these three men became a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He became his neighbor. A question to which the lawyer rightly responds, the one who showed mercy. Notice, he, he's not even able to utter the word Samaritan. He, he can't say it. Yet, in the same time, he recognizes his mercy. And we're talking about mercy. Mercy is mercy's undeserved. Mercy is seeing somebody in a predicament, oftentimes in a predicament of their own making, and intervening for their good. And what does Jesus want him to see? He wants him to see that the term neighbor can't be limited to things like geography, nationality, ethnicity, religion. And that's because the Samaritan became something to this man on the road to Jerusalem that he had never before been in his entire life. He became something he hadn't been. He hadn't been this man's neighbor until he met him on the road. And he recognized his need and responded in an act of undeserved and costly kindness. As Pastor Philip Ryken puts in his commentary on this passage, he says, you can't, you can't define your neighbor in advance. You can only be a neighbor when the moment of mercy arrives. And that's because a neighbor is something we are, not merely something we have. It starts to change how we look at the world around us and how we think about people. In light of this, I've put the main point of this passage, and I think this is Jesus' main point here. Is it my neighbor? Our initial question. My neighbor is anyone in need whom in the providence of God I may be able to help. Anyone in need whom in the providence of God I may be able to help. Now, now, I don't know how you've defined neighbor in the past. But the truths of this parable are, 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 are impossible for us to ignore. In, in light of this, I'd like to spend some of our remaining time together wrestling with some application. To do this, I'd, I'd like to begin by proposing a, a working definition, even more of what it means to be a neighbor 
And after this, I'd like to sketch a few guidelines to just kind of wrestle out, like, like how do we apply this truth in our everyday lives? This is like, like, like if we just leave it here, it can seem nebulous and big and undoable. And on one hand, as we're going to see, that's important and it's Jesus' purpose because he wants this man to see there's no way in the world he can consistently do this. Which means he won't be able to attain, attain eternal life by doing it. So for a working definition, being a neighbor... I'd like to put it this way. What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? It's an intentional choice to glorify God by rendering rendering tangible assistance to individuals in need. So, intentional choice to glorify God. Again, that's the root from which the fruit flows. It's not only the person, it's our love for God which, which, is, which is fueling our love for other people. So it's an intentional choice to glorify God by rendering tangible assistance to individuals in need. With the qualification, despite any ethnic, social, political, or religious differences. So we're not looking for how much we agree, how much we're the same, if we, if we would consider them maybe, maybe an enemy in normal circumstances? See, this helps us see that our love for others is always, always a product of our love for God, number one. It's not, it's not some means by which we're earning God's love. It flows from our pre-existing love for God. It's an expression of it. But now as we kind of think about this working definition, it presents us with a number of questions. So let me highlight just a few guidelines that will protect us from unbiblical pursuits of this command. Because I think we can go after this in ways in which God doesn't intend. So let me begin number one. Number one, loving our neighbor as ourself in this context in the context of what Jesus has just taught, is primarily focused on tangible expressions of mercy and kindness towards people in need. That's the most direct application. Tangible expressions of mercy and kindness towards people in need. I mean, kinds of things. I mean, let's just kind of throw some out there. I mean, it might be stopping to help at the scene of an accident. It can be providing childcare or meals for a single mom or a struggling family. It could be doing yard work for an elderly person, giving your time to listen to a coworker's desperate struggles, or giving actual money towards a person in need. It can look a lot of different ways. What's the thing that brings it together? There's a need. There's a need they can't handle. They're they're in a difficult position. Speaking of the financial side, I mean, Colleen and I have been on both sides of this. In fact, while we were in school, while I was in school out in, out in Minneapolis, on the receiving side, we received significant help at one point in time. Towards the end of our time there, we, we, had, some, we had some cars break down, like two. <laughs> and they weren't small repairs. And, and we're like, like, God, like, what's up with this? going to seminary, you know we don't have any money. And, and we're just like sharing a prayer need with our Sunday school class. 
And I get a call from the secretary that somebody left an envelope in the office. Go up there, and it's like full of $100 bills. You know, like, like we've been on the receiving end. But at the very same time when we didn't have money, and, and this is just, just I, I want you to understand, like it doesn't always mean that we have a lot to give. Like, like we were scraping bottom, and God brought this gal into Colleen's life at work. Her life was a mess. It was a mess. And, and it was a kind of mess that she was responsible for most of the mess. But it just felt like the right thing to help her out here and there. Like, like we didn't help her every time, time she needed help, but like, like, like we helped. Because it was a need and it was really broken and she wasn't getting any other help. So it was looking to look a lot of different ways. So it's helping people in need. That's a key thing. Number two, while loving our neighbors as ourselves is a high calling, it doesn't require us to do everything for every needy person we ever meet in our life. That's part of understanding that, 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 that piece on the providence of God. Like, like, like we're going to meet countless needy people in our life and we do not have the ability to meet every need. We're not God. God doesn't expect us to do everything. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't cause us to assume responsibility for every problem that we happen to see in the broader world around us. There's countless needs in the world around us. Some of those we may be called to engage, but others we're not. And it certainly doesn't require us to convert our mortal enemies into close friends or embrace their faulty worldviews to help them. Those are important qualifications. Number three, as we attempt to our love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to be aware of, of, of two primary ditches that line each side of the road. We kind of think of going down the middle of the road, being fulfilling God's command as he calls us. There's ditches on either side of the road. We might say the ditch on the left side of the road. It would beckon us to love all people by embracing unbiblical definitions of love that condone and openly celebrate the very things that God forbids. That's one of the ditches. I mean, just think about it. Where do advocates of, of, of whether it be social justice or critical race theory, the woke and LGBTQIA and everything else agenda typically go? If they're going to go to the Bible, where do they go to defend their viewpoints? They go to passages like this that call us to love all people. That's where they like to go. Hey, look. Love all people. Love my neighbor as myself. That's what we're called to do, right? But what's the problem? I mean, they're, they're making two monumental mistakes. Maybe intentional. Number one... They're severing God's command to love our neighbors from ourselves, from his command, which is always the first and greatest priority to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
They're actually taking the second command and they're cutting it loose from the first and they're putting it actually above it. The second thing they're doing is they're actually acting like those are the only words contained in the Bible. And that there's nothing else that the Bible has to say about what God calls love, what he defines as love. It, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's like the craziest version of Thomas Jefferson's Bible you could ever have. You open it up and there's this one little phrase. And what does it enable them to do? It enables them to completely redefine love according to the fickle whims of our fallen human culture. See, the problem in the left ditch is that it openly denies what God clearly declares in his word. And that is that God and God alone has forever defined the rightful boundaries and expressions of human love. God has defined it. He's defined what sin is. He's defined what proper expressions of love are and what they are not. Therefore, we can never attempt to isolate this phrase from everything else that God clearly reveals. In light of this, we can rightfully say that any encouragement to condone or celebrate sin in the name of love is in fact an encouragement to actually harm, not help our neighbor. That's what's going on. Embracing these ideologies are ways to actively harm, not help our neighbors. So that's the ditch that runs down the left side of the road. How about the ditch on the right side of the road? It's a little different. It, it often attempts to avoid the clear and biblical dangers on the left. Clear. Clear and biblical dangers on the left by adding extra biblical constraints to God's commands to love our neighbors. I mean, in fact, it's kind of a little bit what Israel would often do. Add extra layers in. Restrict its application I mean, I mean, I think we've all read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, where you've restricted the application of the law to something so narrow it almost never applies, but I'm telling you it applies much broader. So, so we're, we're often drawn to restrict. And, and on the one hand, these constraints could be things. They could be things like religion, ethnicity, political affiliation, social status, or how responsible a person is for their problems. Those are, those are kinds of things that can cause us to restrict the application of this command. Especially the last one. Like, like, do you know how responsible they are for the mess they got themselves into? Other kinds of limitations might be things like, like the Christian tribe that we belong to, whatever tribe that might happen to be, might be, might be restricting it to, to the fellowship of the local church, loving my neighbor as myself, I'm identifying neighbor as my fellow Christian alone, not the other people. Or we might even narrow it down even more to just our, our close family. Loving our neighbors is really about me and the fam, and it's really not about anybody else in the world. But just in case you're uncomfortable with labeling this ditch the right, I'm not saying it's a ditch that only conservatives fall into. 
It's not merely a conservative ditch, no. No, the progressive counterculture falls in this ditch just as well, doesn't it? Cancel culture rides the right ditch, and it doesn't, it doesn't just restrict rightful expressions of mercy, it openly punishes anybody who doesn't play by their rules. So the restrictions that happen on the right aren't just to one group or another group of people. There's different kinds of restrictions depending on what people we're talking about. But what does Jesus show us in the parable? Jesus' point is we can't reserve our love for those who already love us. We can't just reserve our love for the people who already love us. So at one level, this passage rightfully calls us to imitate the Good Samaritan. But at the end of the day, I want you to see it does so much more. Christian, it reminds us of our desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, don't miss this. Whatever else the law can rightfully do for us as a Christian, it can't make us love our neighbors. The way that Jesus is talking about loving our neighbors, the law is never going to make you love your neighbors. It's only going to show how much you fail at loving your neighbors. That's what it'll do. Because, because God demands that we count our enemies among our neighbors. Jesus points this out in Matthew 5, starting verse 44, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing. It's, this is something we need to have impressed upon us as Christians. But see, the good news of the gospel is that in mercy, God has poured out his love on law-breaking sinners like us. Sinners who struggle to be good neighbors. Sinners who may not even care about being good neighbors at the time. And he did it through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus came to our aid, Jesus didn't just cross to the other side of the road to meet us. He crossed the infinite distance between heaven and earth. And when he did, we weren't merely dying, we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. When he loved us, he didn't love us with a few coins and a donkey ride but by suffering a bloody and painful death on the cross to pay for our sins. See, the cross helps us see with clarity what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves in a way that we can never fully do because we're not Jesus, but in a way that we can emulate it in our daily lives. See, friends, at the end of the day, we don't undertake 
And we need to be clear about this. We do not undertake the difficult task of loving our neighbors to gain eternal life. It's not the means. We do it out of our love for God, remembering that when we were beaten and bloodied and left for dead, Jesus himself came and showed infinite mercy to us. Let's close with prayer.